agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Professor of Law at Chase Law School, Ken Gatkin. Hey, Michael. Hey, Ken. So I, I am, I'm looking forward to this. You know, a, a while back now, you and Trey started this special series on going through the Constitution. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed the episode you've done with Trey. And it was a lot of fun. I think you and I did one previous to this. And uh, we're at the point now, I think, where we're at our, well, still, still in Article 1, so there'll be plenty of stuff for you and Trey to cover, and this may be the last one you and I do together, but uh, we're at some of the beefier parts of Article 1, I think. Section 7 and 8, there are some things I thought we could get to today, and, and there's a lot in these two articles. And so what we decided to do beforehand is to focus our discussion a little bit more by looking at three specific things. That's uh, the legislative veto. The Commerce Clause, which is one specific thing, but with massive implications, and the Declare War Clause. So we'll start with the legislative veto. And it's not a term that you'll see anywhere in the Constitution, but until 1983, it was a fairly common practice. And this is, for those who don't know, uh, it's basically where one or both chambers of Congress or even specific committees were given the authority to override executive branch actions as part of the legislation that enabled those legislative branch actions in the first place. And the reason they do that is that, well, you give the executive branch greater statutory authority than it might have all otherwise been given because Congress gets to do that and still give themselves a check on executive power that's a lot easier to implement than trying to pass new legislation, especially over a presidential veto. So uh, both the president and the Congress in many instances saw this as kind of a a win-win uh, situation. But in 1983, in the case INS versus Chadha, uh, the Supreme Court, 7-2, to ruled that this practice was unconstitutional. Uh, in the opinion, Chief Justice Berger wrote that the legislative process represents the framers' decision that the legislative power of the federal government be exercised in accord with a single finally wrought and exhaustively considered procedure. This procedure is an integral part of the constitutional design for the separation of powers. He continued, when the framers intended to authorize either House of Congress to act alone and outside of its prescribed bicameral legislative role, they narrowly and precisely defined the procedure for such action in the Constitution. And basically he concluded for the majority that even though, yeah, this is a pain, you know, the legislative veto may be really efficient, may be something both the Congress and the president want, at least much of the time, that the choices we discern as having been made in the constitutional convention impose burdens on governmental processes that often seem clumsy, inefficient, even unworkable. But those hard choices were consciously made by men who had lived under a form of government that permitted arbitrary governmental acts to go unchecked. So that was the majority opinion, but there were some dissenters and one concurring opinion, and I should point out their logic as well. Um, Justice White, who was one of the dissenters, 
uh, noted that the court's decision sounds the death knell for nearly 200 other statutory provisions. And Justice Powell, in his concurrence, was kind of similarly concerned. He said, you know, this the breath of this holding, it, it's got to give you pause. Uh, so you'd think that would be the end of it, right? The Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional. Congress has to stop doing it. But the reality is a little bit more complex than that. And I want to get into that reality. Before we do, Ken, I wanted to get into your thoughts on the court's ruling in, in on the constitutionality of legislative vetoes in the first place. Well, I, I think Justice White's dissent is obviously correct, but I, um, I maybe we should back up. I, we didn't really talk about the text of the uh, uh, of, of Article One, Section. Oh yeah, 7 definitely. Let's do that. That, that, that. The court was interpreting in Chatta, so that might be, a, to me, a more logical place to start. Some of this is kind of schoolhouse rock type stuff that probably most of the listeners know. Some of it's a little bit more detailed than than that. Um, but Article One, Section Seven uh, on the legislative process. Um, is the section of the Constitution that spells out what, what is the process by which a bill becomes a law. And uh, our Article 1, Section 7 says, uh, um, well, for, for a bill to become a, a law, there's a few paths, but the, the most ordinary path um, is that uh, the same exact language of the same exact bill has to pass by simple majority votes in both the House and the Senate. Um, and if, 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 if a bill does pass in identical form in the House and the Senate by simple majority votes in both, then that, that we call that bicameralism, the idea that it has to pass both houses. Um, and then once it does that, it has to be presented to the president. And we call that uh, presentment. And then the president has a few things he could do. Um, if, if, if an enrolled bill is presented to him, enrolled bill being a bill that's already passed both houses, uh, he, he could sign it into law. Um, and then it becomes law. Uh, he could veto it. Um, and he is required by uh, Article 1, Section 7, if he vetoes it, to sign um, a statement of his objections. So he's supposed to say why he's vetoing it. Um, his objections could range from things like, uh, well, it, I think it's unconstitutional, so I have to veto it, to, um, you know, I, there's no constitutional problem with it. I just think it's bad policy, or, or I think it'll have bad side effects, but he's, or, or I don't like this provision. He can give some objections like that and send, send the vetoed bill back. Um, when the vetoed bill comes back to the Congress, Congress has a couple options. They, they, could, um, they, could, they could address the president's objections. If he says, you know, I, I don't like this one provision, but if you take that out, I'd sign it. Um, they, they can do that if they have to revote it again in both houses, but they, they can cha make changes and send it back to the president. Uh, or they can try to override the president's veto. That would take a two-thirds vote in each house. But if they, if they get that two-thirds vote in each house, then the bill becomes a law even after the president vetoed it, and it doesn't have to be presented to the president uh, a second time. So that's what we usually see is the president either signing bills into law or vetoing bills and sending them back. Um, if he does veto them, we often, you know, we don't often see overrides, but sometimes we do. The president actually does have a third option, and this is the one they don't talk about as much on Schoolhouse Rock. But um, he could just ignore the whole mm -hmm. thing. Uh, if, if an enrolled bill comes up to him, uh, he doesn't have to sign it. He doesn't have to veto it. And rather interestingly, the, the Constitution provides complicated default rules based on timing um, about what happens if, if the president uh, ignores a bill. And uh, if he ignores a bill and the Congress stays in session for 10 more days and doesn't adjourn, um, then on day 11, 
the bill is a law without the president's signature. So his ignoring it um, actually has the effect the same as if he had signed it. Um, but on the other hand, if, if the Congress adjourns in less than 10 days uh, after they send the president a bill so that 10 days later they're not in session anymore, then um, he gets what's sometimes called the pocket veto. And, and then if he just ignores it, that counts as a veto. So all, all of those provisions are there. I thought they were worth talking about um, before we get into the, some of the sure. controversies that have arisen. And, and the, the, the biggest controversy probably that has arisen, um, which, which you talked about, is this, this question of what if Congress uses that system to enact a law? In other words, they, they, the law that they enact is enacted because language in the bill passes the house passes the senate goes to the president and signs it into and the president signs it into law so it becomes a law but 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 part of that law that got passed that way in the ordinary course um creates some supervisory authority that um congress can exercise over um power that the the bill has put into the executive branch and the the court ruled that congress can't do that uh, in chatta for for reasons that you just talked about um that that is a that's a very dysfunctional holding, um, and you know it 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 it's so dysfunctional that um, one two things you already noted. I just want to emphasize one is that if anyone ever asks you the trivia question, you know what is the Supreme Court case that held the most federal statutes <laughs> unconstitutional all at once? Uh, it's Chad. Chad Chad held more than two hundred federal statutes unconstitutional because the use of uh, uh, congressionally reserved supervisory authority um, was 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 the norm, and so by holding it unconstitutional, um, they were actually holding that um, something that was the, the normal way that administrative law is done um, was unconstitutional, and therefore most administrative law is unconstitutional, at least in a minor respect. And so, so that um, you know that itself was kind of radical. Um, but the other thing that shows you what a dysfunctional holding it is is you know be, besides the fact that it was so out of whack with the way things were being done on the ground, um, is that uh, it's been essentially ignored. And you you averted to this a little bit, but it would be impossible um, to run a government where Congress was forced to write blank checks of power to the government, to the executive branch, and then Congress could not do anything to control uh, how the executive branch uh, exercised that power. Um, and so nobody really follows it. And the, the, uh, the one um, change that you see um, in modern legislative veto provisions, which are exactly as prevalent after Chatta as they were uh -huh. before, um, is that the, the modern legislative veto provisions do generally tend to be phrased in the form of recommendations. And um, to, to explain what that even means, I'm probably going to have to use an example. Yeah. So I'll, I'll use the example of the Chatta case itself, the facts of that case. If, uh, if that, is that okay? Yeah, do definitely that? do that. Absolutely. I think yeah. it'll help. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Chatta is a case where um, it deals with foreign students attending American universities. And the rule um, that, the, that is part of the Immigration and Nationality Act uh, is that if a if a foreign student gets accepted to an American university, they can demonstrate that they have financial ability to pay. Uh, they can pass a background check, a criminal and terrorist type background check. Um, then they can be given a student visa to come here and study. And the student visas typically last five years for students that are going into a four-year undergraduate program. So they're inherently given a little bit of slack time. They don't have to finish the four-year program before they've got five. but you know, some of us have probably known students from time to time that actually take more than five years sure. 
uh, to complete uh-huh. uh, a four-year undergraduate program. And this can happen to foreign students as well. Um, so Congress thought about that problem. You know, what, what if we say that the student visa is five years, but we're occasionally going to have problems where a foreign student says, oh, I, I couldn't schedule those last three credit hours. You know, my, my five <laughs> years of work is going to be down the drain unless I'm allowed to come back for another semester next year. Uh, well, what, well, the way the Immigration Nationality Act dealt with that is it says, OK, the what used to be called the Immigration and Naturalization Service, I believe. I believe today that's been folded into uh-huh. ICE, um, but they 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 um, they can read an application. The student can send them an application and say, "Look, here's my circumstances. Here's the re- here's what I've done the five years I was here. Here's the reason I couldn't finish my program in, in five years. Here's how much time I need to finish. Can I please have an extension of my visa so I can stay in the country and finish?" And the INS was empowered. Um, to either grant or deny that application on an individual basis. They, they could say, okay, you can stay, or you know, no, you can't stay. Um, but, but the statute also said in the, same, in the same statute that granted the INS the power to make that judgment in individual uh, cases with respect to individual applications from foreign students, same statute says about once a month or so, the INS should compile a list of names. They should send up to the U.S. House of Representatives the names of uh, all the foreign students who applied for extensions, who they granted. Um, and if any member of Congress looks at that list and sees a name there and says, I've got a problem with that. I don't think that person should stay in the country. Um, that member of Congress was then empowered to call for a vote of the House. And if a majority of members of the House voted, uh, again, by simple majority, to overrule the INS's um, visa extension, and to rescind it and to, to kick that student out of the country, um, then the House's vote uh, over, over, overruled the, um, the agency's decision. So that, that's how that legislative veto worked. The, the Supreme Court in the Chatta case um, said that that's unconstitutional, that it's perfectly okay for Congress to give the INS that kind of discretionary authority to, to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to individual students, but it's not okay uh, for, for Congress to review that and to cast votes in individual cases. Um, and, and the court's reasoning was that um, that would allow the House of Representatives um, to change uh, the, the law as it applies to an individual student uh, without, right. um, uh, it's against uh, using bicamerals and presentment. But again, you know, after voting um, on a particular student, um, having the Senate take the same vote, having the president sign the same vote. So that was the holding in, in Chatta. Now, what you actually would see today, if you looked at that same statute, is everything would be the same, except that the, 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 you know, the single member of the House could still call for that vote. The House could still call for that vote. Um, but instead of, in, instead of the House vote taking uh, immediate legal effect, and that would mean that the student, in that case, a student named Chad, who's got his name on the case, once the House voted that um, he shouldn't stay, the, the House's vote had legal effect and he was kicked out of the country. Um, well, today the House's vote would not have legal effect, but it would be transmitted back to the INS, and the, the House would tell the INS, um, we, we think you made a mistake in this case. Um, we, we would like to ask you to reconsider it. We'd like to ask you to kick Chad out of the country. And if you don't do that, um, we'll remember uh, next time <laughs> your appropriations bill comes up that you wouldn't do what we told you to do. Um, and so, so the INS receiving that communication um, will probably themselves take the decision to reverse their own earlier actions. So it just adds this extra layer 
that I think is um, inevitable and, and necessary uh, if we're going to have, um, you know, Congress, uh, you know, maintaining some role in the process of shaping the law. And so, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a stupid decision. Um, it's an impractical decision. It, it's not one with any um, serious basis in the, in the Constitution. I know the, the majority thought that they were using a textualist mode of interpretation because they thought they were giving a plain language reading. Uh, to Article One, Section Seven, but but that only makes sense if you ignore uh, other language that's in Article One, Section Eight, um, which says that um, Congress is allowed to use um, necessary and proper means to give effect to its other powers. So you know, I would say if Congress has the power to make uh, immigration law and to provide for um, student visas and to provide for a mechanism for extensions of student visas then I think Article 1, Section 8, Necessary and Proper Clause obviously means that Congress can do that in a way that's useful and convenient. And that might mean um, giving, giving, giving some initial authority to the INS that, that Congress can exercise supervisory power over later. As I was reading through in, in preparing for this show, Justice White's dissent, you know, I mean, he, he gets into a lot of those things. His dissent was basically a big, oh, come on, what world do you live in sort of thing. There was one point where he says, uh, how is it? If, if the veto devices so flagrantly disregard the requirements of Article 1, as the court today suggests, I find it incomprehensible that Congress, whose members are bound by oath to uphold the Constitution, would have placed these mechanisms in nearly 200 separate laws over a period of 50 years. And he kind of goes on in that vein. But but it seemed yeah. to me when I read the majority's decision, it was that I, I, I saw the technical argument, but it just seemed to me to be so divorced from the kind of well, I, I guess it's weird that it the was, realities of government. Yes, yeah. exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think White says at one point in his dissent that he reminds them that when the, the framers wrote that language in Article 1, Section 7, the whole United States didn't even have 4 million people. Yeah. Um, most, of the, most of the issues that, that uh, today's agencies have to deal with just didn't exist. And that if you're going to have a government that can govern um, you know, more than 300 million people, um, that, that can regulate you know, complex industries, that can deal with complex technology, um, it's really going to be impossible to govern unless some frontline regulatory authority is given to specialized agencies of government. Um, and so, you know, given the absolute necessity of that in the modern world, you know, we've only got two choices. You're either going to say, OK, well, then those agencies can govern in an unaccountable way um, or they can govern in a, a way that's accountable to Congress. And it seems that the, the latter should be preferable to pretty much every one of every political persuasion. I agree with it even today, even though I, um, you know, I like the uh, administration a lot better than I like the House <laughs> of Representatives. Yeah. But 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 even still, I think it's just obvious that the uh, you, you, you either are going to have, um, you know, some kind of some kind of monarchy um, or else you're or else you're going to have some accountability to Congress. I, I guess it's you would know better than I would on this, but it seems strange to me that I, I do not associate the, the Burger Court, the court of that era with kind of strict textualist kind of interpretations of the Constitution. And yet, as you point out, this does seem to be a very kind of crib sort of, you know, uh, textualist interpretation of one particular element, which White calls them out yeah. for as well, saying you need to read the Constitution in context, guys. And, and clearly. But is that I mean, does that does that seem kind of out of character to you as well? Or? You know, you know, I think I think in the early 80s, the concept of textualism barely existed. But I think the, the concept that they would have been thinking about that was more familiar to them um, 
in the debates of those days, you had formalism versus functionalism, mm. right? So, so, so the, the Justice White view would be the functionalist view, um, and the, the Justice Berger view would be the formalist view. And I think to, to sort of talk about those schools of interpretation, um, the, the formalist, um, you know, then and probably still to some extent today would say, well, what the Constitution is, is it's like a rule book. And so you just have to follow the rules. And, you know, ours is not to reason why right. we have these particular rules or whether they're good or bad or what they're supposed to accomplish. You know, we, we just have to follow them because that's the proper judicial role. Um, whereas the, uh, the, the, the functionalist would say, well, we, we have a Constitution that, you know, was written, um, you know, certainly to achieve certain kinds of political goals. We're supposed to have a democracy. We're supposed to have separation of powers. We're supposed to protect individual liberty and freedom, civil liberties. We're supposed to have some forms of legal equality. And we have structures of government that are designed in the 18th century to do that. Um, and to the extent that the structures of government, um, you know, need to be operated a little bit differently to deal with the 20th or 21st century world, um, the important thing is is preserving the 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 concepts that the framers gave yeah. us. So preserving democracy and accountability and separation of powers and civil liberties um, in a modern context. And so you know, White says, you know, if, if separation of powers is important, um, and if we don't want accumulations of absolute power that can corrupt, well, then you know, the the practical way to do that in the modern world is. Let the let the Congress delegate big swaths of discretion to the agencies so they can regulate and let and then let the, the agencies be subject to supervision by the Congress. Yeah. And, and if, if you don't make them subject to supervision by the Congress, then you don't have separation of powers. And so it's, uh, yeah. you know, I think that's how the functionalists would look at it. I think, you know, if you want to give it a slightly more partisan um, interpretation, um, I do think there was an element here, um, which I think, you know, gets more pronounced later in the 80s and into the 90s where there was a little window of time when, you know, we'd had the Nixon administration, we were in the Reagan administration, Carter was there, but that was a short blip because of Watergate, maybe, where I think Republican justices thought that the Republicans were always going to have the White House, and that the Dems were maybe always going to have the Congress, and they were looking for doctrines that would wrest power away from those Democratic Congresses and move it towards those Republican White Houses. And I, I do read that into this as well. And, and, and certainly, given what we have seen about, you know, the structure of the control of Congress really from the New Deal, New Deal period up until the, the mid 90s, it was it was largely run by Democrats. And it's not an unrealistic. It wasn't. A, you could understand how they might see things that way if that oh, was part of the. Approach. Yeah, I, I thought they saw things that way. And it was it, it, it was accurate at yeah. that time. But I, I think, yeah. But what I'm accusing them of is like, I yeah. think that's why they did this. Right? Well, you know, I mean, it's so, a power grab. Some, it's a power grab for the administration against the Congress. But some people might have. Might make the argument that the background uh, of of the justices might lead into that as well, and and I think about this in terms of White because uh, I don't know if his friends called him Wizard, but that's what he was called when he was an NFL player, and that's that's weird, right? NFL player becomes Supreme Court justice, but he played in the '30s for uh, then they were the Pittsburgh Pirates, they became the Pittsburgh Steelers, and in fact he he led the league in rushing for a while. He was the highest played paid player in the NFL. Now that's back when the salaries were a lot lower, but. Uh, but, but, but if you take a look at White's background in sort of various, not the real world exactly, but in various aspects of the world, and you compare that to the 
I would argue, very, very constrained background in just strictly the legal world of almost all modern Supreme Court justices that, you know, some people would say that that makes a difference. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on it? Maybe not necessarily specifically in White's case, but that or just more generally. I know that that was sometime an argument that was made about, for instance, Justice O'Connor, because she had served some time in, I believe, the Arizona State Legislature, that sort of thing. Do you think that matters? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, White and O'Connor spent a fair amount of years on the court together, mm -hmm. and they were very aligned with each other. Um, yeah, White, um, you know, so you talked about his career in the NFL, which was a, a brilliant career, and he, he managed to only go to Yale Law School in the spring semesters. He was never available to go in the fall <laughs> semesters because he was playing uh, NFL football. Oh, and uh, um, he... Uh, you know, he when he went back to Colorado, uh, where he was from, uh, he was very much involved in in the the Colorado Democratic Party. He was he was much more of like a uh, political player than um, you know, kind of a, a, a Ivy Tower lawyer. I would say he was never you know an academic or anything like right. that. He was never a judge until he was a Supreme Court justice, um, and you know, so he went straight from you know he had no experience in any lower courts. And I think he had a, a more um, realistic understanding of, of practical politics, but also of practical governance and of the kinds of things that would make government effective and the kinds of things that would make government uh, accountable. And uh, he uh, and he believed it. He believed in strong government, but he also believed in civil rights. Um, and he did not very much like uh, any kind of doctrines that uh, shackled the power of the government, um, except in cases where he could see individual civil rights reasons to do that. Um, and he was very skeptical about the kinds of argument. The majority is sort of, you know, one one form of argument the majority makes in Chatta is of the form, well, we have separation of powers for the purpose of protecting liberty. And even if you can't see in any particular case, you know, how the strong, stringent enforcement of these bicameralism and presentment rules uh, protect liberty. You know, you have to just accept that oh, that's what yeah. it's there for. And so we have to follow them. And he he hated that form of <laughs> argument. You know, like he I think he thought of himself as a justice who was very willing to protect liberty in a case where he saw how liberty was being threatened. But he was very unwilling to accept those kind of hand waving prophylactic type yeah. Uh, arguments. Yeah. Um, if I can also digress for another yeah, minute. Please do. Bonus yeah. show. You know, I don't know if you knew this, but I, I clerked in the Byron White courthouse in Colorado I when, when I was a law clerk oh. yeah, in the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver. And at the time that I clerked in the Byron White courthouse in Denver, which was in the 1996-97 term after I graduated from law school, that was about uh, a year and a half after he stepped down from the U.S. Supreme Court and Ruth Bader Ginsburg got his seat. And uh, these retired justices, um, they're entitled, if they want to, um, to uh, um, continue to, you know, be what they call senior judges. So they, they can still have uh, chambers um, wherever they want in a federal courthouse somewhere. They can still, uh, they can't sit on the Supreme Court anymore if they retire from the Supreme Court, but they can still sit on circuit court panels or even hear district court trials if they want to, um, pretty much anywhere they want to. And uh, Justice White um, you know, I don't know that he loved that he, there was a building called the Byron White Courthouse. I think it embarrassed him uh -huh. a little bit, but he but he did want to go back to Denver and he did have the chambers right next to ours. Oh, very um, cool. So I would see him, you know, every day that he would come into the building. He didn't come in every day, but he came in a lot. And also um, my uh, judge that I clerked for, the Honorable David Ebel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, um, he himself had clerked for Justice White um, in the 1966 term at the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Uh, in fact, the year that the court decided uh, Miranda versus Arizona with the Miranda warnings, uh, my, my judge, Judge Ebell, had been White's law clerk then. And uh, um, so they were friendly with each other and White was right next door. Um, so we would get to talk to him sometimes. He was a you know very old man by then, but he would talk to us. And, you know, you talked about how he got appointed to the court. And that was one particular question that we asked him. And I, I don't think the answer he gave was 100 percent accurate, <laughs> but it's a good story. It's yeah. a good story. So, so you know, um, uh, you know, we're, you know, I think I think we would never have had the nerve to ask him that. But Judge, I think Judge Eber right, knew, sure. knew, knew the story. So he asked him on our behalf and he knew that that White liked to tell it. And uh, so Judge Eber was like, oh, tell tell my clerks the story of, uh, you know, how you got on the, the court. Uh and Justice White says, well, you know, it really all uh, goes back to 1942, um, although I didn't get on the court till 1961 or 62. And uh, um, uh, so what happened in 1942? Well, I was in naval intelligence in 1942 uh, during the war. And my main job in naval intelligence for a while was to try to figure out in the Pacific uh, where there had been any um, U.S. military personnel um, who had been um, shot down or been on ships that sunk, you know, that, that we might be able to find and rescue. And uh, and so I would try to, you know, figure that out. And then, you know, I would sometimes be the one to go out there and rescue them if I thought they were out there. And uh, I uh, I went out, you know, one time this this uh, this the PT-109 had gone down and I, I thought <laughs> I figured out where where the people would be and if there were survivors. And I I went out and I, I found some people still there and I rescued them and I brought them in. And, uh, you know, one of them, uh, the, he therefore owed me yeah. a favor. You know, and of course, that's John F. Kennedy. You know? Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So President Kennedy appointed the court. So that was his telling of it. But I, I definitely don't think that was the only reason. Yeah, probably. They, they certainly don't make them like, like Wizard White anymore. That, that's for sure. No. I, not, that's not, for sure. Not yeah. But but he did he did actually graduate at the extreme top of his Yale Law School class even while spending every fall playing in the NFL. That's so, really yeah, something. Very, uh, yeah, impressive guy. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to Article Eight and the Commerce Clause. Before we do, uh, I should say uh, for for those of you who are not supporters, we hope that you enjoyed this preview of our supporters' exclusive midweek show. And if you are a supporter, the rest of it's coming up in just a second. And if you aren't a supporter yet, well, you can become one. Go to Patreon.com/slash/PoliticsGuys through Venmo or at PoliticsGuys or through PayPal. The support links, as always, are in the show notes as well as at Politics politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get this whole midweek show every week, but you're not in the financial position to support us, not a problem. Email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make sure the full midweek show goes out to you every single week.